welcome to the Jewish Lives podcast, a monthly show by Jewish Lives, the prize-winning biography series published by Yale University Press and the Leon D. Black Foundation. I'm your host, Alessandra Wallner. In each episode, we explore the life and legacy of an influential Jewish figure. Today, we're looking at the comic genius of Mel Brooks. In the second part of the show, I'll sit down with Jeremy Dauber, author of the Jewish Lives biography, Mel Brooks, Disobedient Jew. If you like what you hear, rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a friendly review. Thank you in advance. You can learn more about our books at jewishlives.org. Join us as we explore the Jewish experience together. Mel Brooks was born with a gift. Even when in the midst of a life-or-death scenario, like diffusing landmines during World War II, he could still find the laugh. And what do you do? You, you take a bayonet and you look for mines, planted mines. Uh, and they could blow up a tank. I mean, they're big. They're telemines. Your so job you, was to try and fight with bayonets? Just to, you find them and unearth them. And yeah. take them. You know, really, that was part of the combat engineer's job. And if, if it could blow up a tank, I mean, it could certainly take away a Jew in no time. <laughs> Mel Brooks' long and storied career began in the mid-20th century. What is it about this man's sense of humor that has made him relevant and hilarious for well over half a century? Born Melvin Kaminsky in 1926 in Brooklyn, Brooks got his start in the 1950s, writing sketches for the comedy legend Sid Caesar on his famous variety program, Your Show of Shows. Brooks went on to become one of the most successful comedy filmmakers in his own right, directing and co-writing classics like Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, and The Producers. It's springtime for Hitler and Germany. Brooks' style of irreverent, boundary-pushing comedy paved the way for generations of comedians. His work has been celebrated for deftly skewering social norms and even making light of topics many comics were too skittish to touch in a way that managed to be both incisive and outrageously funny. Don't be stupid, be a smarty. Come on, join the Nazi party. Alongside his filmmaking career, Brooks has also made numerous appearances as a performer on stage and screen. He's won countless awards for his work, including an Oscar and multiple Emmy, Grammy, and Tony Awards. In 2009, he received the Kennedy Center Honors for his contributions to American culture. Mel Brooks' influence can be seen in the work of countless younger comedians. But at 96, he's still making riotously funny jokes, like the ones on display in his recently released The History of the World Part Two. As Brooks says, rhetoric doesn't get you anywhere. Hitler and Mussolini, they were just as good at rhetoric. But if you can bring these people down with comedy, they stand no chance. Discover a spirited dive into the life and career of a performer, writer, and director who has dominated contemporary American comedy in the new Jewish Lives biography, Mel Brooks' Disobedient Jew by Jeremy Dauber. Save 25%.
For a limited time only, use code BROOKS at checkout. Only at JewishLives.org. Jeremy Dauber is a professor of Jewish literature and American studies at Columbia University, where he teaches on a range of topics from Dostoevsky to Mel Brooks to graphic novels to Sholem Aleichem. He's also the author of two books that were finalists for the National Jewish Book Award. He frequently lectures on topics related to American popular culture, Jewish literature, history, and humor. Welcome to the Jewish Lives podcast. Thanks so much. It's so wonderful to be here. So let's just get right to it. What is it that makes Mel Brooks so funny? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, and first, you know, as a fan, I definitely agree with that. I grew up watching him. I grew up laughing uh, at his movies. What I think really makes him so interestingly funny uh, to me um, is the way that he is both so enmeshed in American popular culture. I mean, here's a guy who has all the awards you could possibly ask for, right? right but he also makes that humor by sort of standing a little bit outside of that culture uh, and saying, okay, you know, I love Westerns, I love horror movies, I love uh, science fiction, but uh, there's something a little off with all of those, and I'm going to make fun of them. So it's that interesting push and pull between sort of being an insider, the consummate insider, and also being outside that really is this, uh, generates this amazing uh, talent. And can you read us a passage from the book that you feel really captures Mel Brooks' essence? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'll read the first couple of sentences of the book, because that way, if you like it, I haven't spoiled anything. Your obedient Jew, Mel Brooks, was how he often signed his letters, and in that signature lies the essential contradiction of his nature. The deep-seated need to be loved, accepted, adopted by all, and the irresistible, rebellious urge to take the universal, the standard formula, and to make it funny by making it Jewish. And what prompted you to choose that subtitle, Disobedient Jew? Not a lot of people know, unless you're super Mel Brooks fans, that he often would sign his letters, your obedient Jew, Mel Brooks. That was how he would sign them. Um, and that is also part of this paradox, because, of course, you couldn't find someone less obedient than Mel Brooks. Here was a guy who wanted to throw spitballs. He wanted to break things up. He wanted to smash things uh, for the name of comedy. But he also did it out of, if not obedience, not exactly, uh, affection uh, and really a desire to be loved and to be cherished and to be welcomed. So again, it was that kind of push and pull, you know, signing your letters, this thing in this kind of quasi-polite thing, that that was what really made me uh, uh, decide to subtitle it that way. Going back to what comprises his comedy, part of what he's been lauded for is this willingness and deftness to address really sensitive topics, including but not limited to racism, anti-Semitism. How did he pull that off to be able to do it without totally offending all of the people that are involved in those commentaries? Well, I think there are two answers to that, maybe even three, uh, but I'll be brief about them. One of them is that he did offend some of them. And I think that that part of the story that I tell in the book is uh, how he came to terms with some of that sort of pushback and how he didn't and how he, he channeled it into some of his work. And so that's part of the story too. Part of it was that he very frequently did it 
with a good heart, a heart that was in the right place. And that's one of the things that's so appealing about Mel Brooks is that, um, for example, Blazing Saddles is offensive in many ways, but people who watched Blazing Saddles, including a young Barack Obama, uh, say this is a movie that really takes on racism, right? Uh, it may not do it in a way that we would do it today, but it, it, it certainly uh, uh, does so. Uh, and that's the second. And the third answer, of course, is that he was quite successful most of the time at doing it, particularly in movies like Blazing Saddles uh, and Young Frankenstein. He made a tremendous amount of money. And so nothing succeeds in changing studios' minds and changing people's minds, like producing an appealing product. And that's part of it as well. So those are the three reasons, I think, that, that uh, account for his uh, success in that kind of way. Speaking of his success, I want to go back to the start. He was very close to a very successful comedian of his day, Sid Caesar. And that was kind of part of his start. So what was at the core of their relationship? It's a great question. I mean, one of the things that really, you know, uh, a biographer tries to think about but tries not to think too hard about is the psychobiographical aspects of it. It's like you don't want to be too much of a psychologist. But it's certainly the case that Brooks was looking for a father figure, and that probably had to do with the fact that his father died when he was very young. He didn't really know his father. And Sid Caesar was this tremendous sort of paternal figure to him as well, both in terms of his talent. He was comedically polished and sort of a full product before Brooks really had started. But also, literally, he gave him a job. He recognized him. He was someone whose approval Brooks was always looking for. So th there was a real kind of familial dynamic in a certain way and not just a, a professional one. And, and in fact, Max Liebman, the producer of the Sid Caesar starring Your Show of Shows, uh, didn't want Brooks around. He said, uh, this guy's trouble. I don't want him at all. And Caesar was like, no, there, there, there's something there. I, I, I think this guy has a huge talent. I, I, I care about him. I'm going to pay him out of my own pocket. And that was a dynamic that kind of continued for many years to come. And how about Carl Reiner and that dynamic? They often performed together and that was once Brooks was a little more established. This is a book about Mel Brooks, but any book about Mel Brooks has to be a little bit about Carl Reiner too, because Reiner, who was a actor and kind of writer on your show of shows, very talented writer as well as a talented actor, played a role that, that Brooks needed in a lot of other ways through his life, which was a kind of shaping partner, someone who he could work with in a duet, uh, and most famously in The 2,000-Year-Old Man, where Brooks would be this explosive, wild, chaotic energy, and Reiner was a brilliant manipulator of that energy, keeping it on track, keeping the flow. And that partnership, which became sort of the deepest friendship, the deepest male friendship of, of Brooks's life, lasted until uh, Reiner's death just a few years ago. And did Mel Brooks have a relationship at all with Lenny Bruce? You know, I don't think that the two of them really connected in a kind of professional way. I think that one of the things that's interesting about Bruce, as opposed to Brooks, is that Bruce really said, I am turning my life into the subject of my art. And while Brooks certainly turned Jewishness into the subject of his art, it was always underneath this sort of scrim of character. He, Brooks was, acted like a 2,000-year-old man, but he wasn't the 2,000-year-old man. And so there was that kind of autobiographical sensibility that, that, that uh, Bruce really pioneers, that Brooks says, I'm interested in sort of taking the archetype, the mass, the persona, that's what Brooks did. And it's two hugely important trends uh, in American comedy, both by American Jews. You've so adeptly explained what his skill is and what made him funny. So I'm curious, what do you think are some important lessons that aspiring comedians can learn from Mel Brooks, both his life and his career? 
Well, interestingly, uh, one, and I, I wrote about this uh, as well through the book, is that we think of Brooks, of course, as a huge success and, and, and quite reasonably so. But for a long time, he wasn't a success. Kind of things worked out with Caesar and then Caesar stopped and he was kind of in the wilderness for a while. And a lot of what I write about in the book that I think is not as much told are all of these flops that he worked on. But Brooks was believed in himself. He had this indomitable energy. He continued to work. And I think that's a tremendous lesson. Any kind of professional career is paved with rejection. Uh, and, and, and Brooks powered through that, uh, firmly convinced of his own talent and his own brilliance. And you know what? He was right. So that, I think, is the most important lesson I would say you could take from Mel Brooks. The other, uh, I would say, is despite what we've just said, is to be who you are. It was not obvious that, and in fact, it wasn't obvious to Brooks or Reiner, that a comedy duo about a 2,000-year-old Jewish man was going to have widespread success. But it, of course, did. And so, um, you know, that was who he had to be, and he was, and it worked. Do you have a favorite Mel Brooks work? <laughs> well, someone once said, it's a famous quote, that the golden age of science fiction is 12. That is what you encounter when you're 12. That's what it is. And so it's not quite the same, but I was roughly in that era when I encountered History of the World Part One. And so even though I don't necessarily think that it's Brooks's best work, I think that's probably either Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein or maybe the producers, it is the work that, that means in some sense the most to me because it was where I came in, so to speak. Uh, and so, of course, I was delighted in my own way to see that the book came out exactly the time that History of the World Part Two, this thing that was just hinted at at the end of the finally, uh, you know, materializes. And it was a wonderful kind of homecoming to my childhood. And to bring us home in this episode, if you were having lunch with Mel Brooks, number one, what would you order? And number two, what would you ask him or is there anything you'd say to him? Well, first say thank you for so many laughs and so many, you know, wonderful childhood and adulthood memories. And he's brought a huge amount of joy to so many people. And as I've begun to tour and talk to people, I hear that everybody feels warmly about Brooks. Everyone's in. And I probably order deli because that feels like the kind of thing you would order with Mel Brooks the right order. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your book, Mel Brooks, Disobedient Jew. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. The Jewish Lives Podcast is made possible by the Leon D. Black Foundation. Special thanks to our partners at Yale University Press, the Jewish Lives Editorial Director, Eileen Smith, series editors, Anita Shapira and Stephen J. Zipperstein, Managing Director Rebecca Keyes, and to Linda Brennan and Ruby Elliott Zuckerman. The Jewish Lives Podcast is hosted and produced by me, Alessandra Walner. Our music is composed by Barry J. Cohen. <laughs>